Our second scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. On my cluttered desk in my office is a little wooden tomb seam. Here it is, right here. I know it's hard for some of you to see, but there's no characters a cross looms in the background. The tomb is cut in the side of a hill. And a door seals the entry. You can see the door right here. It remains closed for all of Lent. A reminder that before Easter, there was that hard journey to the cross, Holy Saturday, and Jesus' death. Amidst all of the excitement of exclaiming, Christ is risen, and Easter egg anthems, egg hunts, and gorgeous flowers, one of my favorite rituals is sliding that door wide open on Easter morning. It's simple, it's quick, with just the touch of a finger, but glancing at it reminds me of the stark reminder that resurrection life cannot be contained in tombs or behind closed doors. Did Jesus open it or did angels? It really doesn't matter. 
resurrection life, and Jesus, do not linger in the darkness, but transform it and invite the world to see, even if we cling to sin and doubt. The Gospels give us many multiple rich accounts of the resurrected Christ appearing to his faithful followers. On this second Sunday in Easter, John's Gospel leads us back to the upper room where the terrified and grieving disciples are hiding after Jesus has been arrested and executed. Even they, who knew Jesus personally and witnessed his ministry, did not understand that the tomb doors would only stay closed briefly. And so we are gifted these accounts to witness how Jesus still meets them and us, even when they struggled, they denied Christ, or they failed completely, because God shows up as God always promises. In the beginning of chapter 20, Mary Magdalene has already been back to the tomb and discovered it empty. The stone door rolled open. Only linen wrappings remain. Horrified that someone has stolen Jesus' body, she runs back and tells Peter and another disciple, and they return to investigate. The unnamed disciple reaches it first and seeing it empty, immediately believed, though he did not see Jesus resurrected yet. But Peter and the others are perplexed and fearful at this discovery, and they return home. Mary, however, remains weeping at the tomb until two angels appear, and then Jesus himself. He instructs her to go back to the disciples and tell them that he is ascending to the Father. And though she delivers her message that she saw Jesus in the flesh, it is clear that she has not believed what she has told them. And so we come to this passage today where the disciples are hidden, unsure of what to do, unsure of what to make of the strange stories of angels and empty tombs and Jesus walking and talking again. Because that can't be right. Dead men don't walk again. But soon a walking and talking Jesus glides through the locked door of their hideout, offering words of peace to his disciples. And hearing Jesus, they recognize him and the signs of crucifixion on his body. His words, his spoken words, open their hearts and they hear him, just as Mary recognized his voice when he spoke to her at the tomb. And so our senses should be wide awake as we imagine what the disciples are hearing, seeing, and feeling as they see a dead man alive. How did he appear? What did he feel like? Was his voice the same? What is he saying to us now? But poor Thomas, absent from their reunion with Christ, refuses to believe his friend's tale that Jesus is alive until he can actually touch the Lord. And for this, he is unfortunately deemed doubting Thomas, which is truly unfair because they all doubted until they heard and saw Jesus. Must we really be so hard on Thomas? 
And can we really blame him? He's asking for the same opportunity that his friends were able to have. Thomas's struggle is a gift to us. Scripture allows us to see that even Jesus' closest friends and followers struggled and needed help. And Jesus does just that, meeting Thomas where he is, inviting him to fully encounter Jesus. Put your fingers here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. I struggle with that word, that word believe. There are days I don't believe. What if our doubts overcome us? Are we condemned? And so this crucial word of this passage, believe, it comes from the Greek root, pist, which looks, but let's look deeper at it for a moment. One scholar writes, while this word is overwhelmingly rendered as faith in the noun form, or believe in the verb form, in our English New Testament translation, its lexical, its lexical range fully includes the concept of trust. The gospel writer John employs the verb or believe rather than the noun faith. But the nuances of the Greek verb range from trusting in something or someone, relying on something or someone, to believing something is true. And so in this case, our translators chose to use the word believe. But consider that when we talk about believing, we are focusing on whether our brain assents or not. There's no room for an in-between state. Using the word trust, on the other hand, is more relational and exists on a spectrum, often encompassing the feelings that influence our thoughts and actions. And so we often associate believing with our heads and trusting with our hearts. Trusting implies a relationship between people and growing in faith that those involved are connected and can rely on each other. And so Jesus is inviting Thomas and us to trust that he will be present. So perhaps we read Jesus' words to Thomas as, do not be distrusting, but trusting. And are you trusting because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to trust. As those who are many generations removed from Jesus' incarnate life, we do not have the ability to touch his wounded hands and sign and side. So the story marks are opening to new stages of faith and church life. Never again on earth would physical eyes or noses or tongues certify Christ's presence, writes theologian Martin E. Marty. Yet we trust that God's spirit allows us to encounter Christ and the resurrection life that he offers through the word, through sacraments, through the very relationships we have with each other. As creatures that rely on and need relationships, trust 
is essential to building and connecting with those around us. There is that innate trust that a child can depend on their parents to provide and protect them. In our sacred scriptures, we are provided with multitudes of accounts of God providing for God's people time and again. We see that God is trustworthy and never abandons God's people. God seals that trust with us forever through Christ's resurrection. And so choosing to render Jesus' words as trust reframes the scripture and invites us to embrace his words in a relational way rather than reading them in a rigid way of either you believe or you don't. Because for many of us, the word believe is difficult. But trust opens the doors to a developing relationship. And isn't that what Christ is offering Thomas and us? And so this is what I keep coming back to, an open door, a stone rolled away from the tomb and our invitation to risk going through those doors of faith and opportunity and trust that Jesus has it figured out. Trust opens doors perhaps that we would never consider opening. It can be risky, it can be dangerous, and open us to things that we never thought possible. The disciples could never have imagined that the doors that separated them from the outside world would be invaded by Christ himself. Yet as people who proclaim Christ as Lord, we trust that the doors to death's tomb will never be fully sealed because of Christ's actions. Even when we experience pain, humiliation, brokenness, and darkness, we trust that God has something more in hand for us. Thankfully, along with that promise, entrusting God means that we are accompanied by the Holy Spirit as we open those doors that are challenging, frightening, and seemingly impossible to us. It doesn't mean that we won't crash and burn and fail and fly in colors. It means that regardless of our failure, God remains with us. 35 days ago, March 21st, God opened a door that many of you are familiar with. I had been praying fervently for this. New life came for me and my family amidst the sorrow of saying goodbye to a precious life that had been on this earth for over nine decades. But it seems that resurrection life arrives whether you're ready or not. And so three days after my grandfather died at 93 years old, God entrusted me with a little boy named Grayson, a two and a half year old toddler that runs like a wild man, loves puppies and knows no stranger. Many of you have met him and embraced him as a son of First Presbyterian Church, and I can't express my gratitude enough. Growing up, I never imagined that I would become a foster parent and help others' families in such an intimate way. It's fairly easy to imagine decorating a room, finding a name, reading bedtime stories, and changing diapers. 
First words and first steps are the natural progression, right? I figured that at some point, a door would open for me, for a partner and children. But it turns out that at least right now, that door hasn't opened yet, and I'm okay with that. But another door has. My foster son was not announced through a pregnancy test or a gender reveal, but a text message from a state employee. I knew nothing about him except that he needed a home. Grayson came with a small crate of clothing and a blanket, and that was it. So God has opened a door in my life that I could never have anticipated, given me a whole new family through Grayson and unlocked a part of my heart that I didn't know was possible. Instead of first words and first steps, I have first meetings with caseworkers, attorneys, and therapists. Parenting still includes his birth family as well as the Department of Children's Services. I have monthly visits from DCS to make sure that I'm in compliance. Not what many parents envision, but this is the door that I have chosen to step through. And Grayson has stolen my heart. But I live in this liminal space of not knowing what the future holds. I've opened my home, my heart, and my life to a tiny, wonderful human being, and yet have no idea how long he'll be in my life. And I also have to consider that he has been ripped from his own family, even though there's a reason he's been removed. His family deserves healing and wholeness. And so this is the difficult and heartbreaking place that foster parents, that I must be willing to embrace, to parent a child that may only be with me for a season, and to consider what's best for him, even if it means he's not with me forever. There's, of course, no way to protect your heart and only give part of it, thinking you can protect yourself. You give yourself wholly and completely because you really have no choice. And so my heart belongs to Grayson, and so does my house, piled high with diapers, toys, and tiny socks. And so the risk for heartbreak is sky high. And even though it's only been 35 days, the question, of course, lingers with me constantly. What if he isn't with me forever? But what is really best for him? And so the best I can tell you is that I'm leaning on my faith more than I ever have before. I am trusting that God has something in store for me and for Grayson and for his family. And so I trust that God's resurrection life will bring about newness and a future where Grayson is loved and nurtured, even if I'm not a permanent part of that plan. And so I lean on this story of Thomas, of his struggle, and yet his invitation to be with Christ regardless. I trust that when I fall apart, Christ will show up with his wounded hands and lay them on me and my woundedness and knit me back together as only God can. And so I keep this little wooden tomb nearby 
the door now wide open as a reminder that when I struggle, that resurrection life will bring newness and it will bring possibilities that only God can imagine. So for now, I'm okay with not knowing what the future holds. The tomb door has burst open and can never be sealed again. Amen.